All right, um, this morning we are starting um, into the book of Jude. Unlike second and third John, we can't do Jude in one week. Um, we may not have actually been able to do second and third John each in one week. We might have needed to spend a little more time, but I think we were able to get the feel of those books a little bit better. Very, very pointed as to what it was. Those of you who weren't here for both weeks, Second John and Third John are like photographic negatives of each other. Second John is talking about protecting truth from those outside who want to come in and supporting each other, loving each other, abiding in Christ, but holding fast to the truth, which is the most important thing that we can do. Um, and then when outsiders are coming in to actually behave toward them in a way that could seem unloving, it isn't but it could seem unloving because we're actually asking them or not even greeting them, not inviting them into their home, not wishing them well, saying we don't want anything to do with you. The other part, third John, now you have the opposite. Truth is trying to get into the church because somebody in the church is preventing the apostles teaching and is, and is dominating that church and refusing to allow uh, visitors from the outside who are preaching the gospel in. So you have both situations and we live in a world where both are true. We live in a world where there are false prophets, false teachers. Uh, you can see a lot of them on TV if, if you want, but there's also ministries that are teaching the wrong thing. And then you have many churches where the truth is not being taught from inside of the church. The gospel is not being preached. The Bible is not held up as an errant. Um, and we've seen that in our own community. That was, I believe, the reason that the, um, the what is now the community church, which was the Methodist church, left the Methodist church because they made it clear. We don't hold the Bible as our authority anymore. We don't see it as an errant. And so they broke off from that church, but, but um, from that denomination. But that's something that every church, everything's gonna face. The book of Jude continues this theme of fighting against doctrinal error. In fact, it's interesting, if you go to the last five books of the Bible before Revelation, they all deal with error. First John is really being written to talk about people who had come and were saying that Christ had not come in the flesh, that he was a, that was the Gnostic heresy. And that's what first John is written about. Second and third John, we've already been through. Jude is all about false teaching but so is 2 Peter. So it's 2 Peter, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, Jude, all five of those books deal with error in the church. Um, Jude though is going to approach error a little bit different. Uh, when Paul approaches error in Galatians, he blasts them and he shows why their doctrine is false and he just lays the foundation for a gospel of uh, by grace alone. Uh, John talks about their error and what it does. Jude just attacks the false prophets. We have no idea what their error is. Just he talks about their character and who they are and what they will do if we allow them into the church. So it's kind of a different approach, um, Jude is. So let's go ahead and read the whole book because it's not that long. Then I want to take a, the introduction this morning plus kind of an, a brief overview of the book. Um, so... Starting in verse 1, it says, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, 
beloved in God, the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. May mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved the people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in, se indulged in sexual immorality, and pursued unnatural desire serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. Yet in like manner, these people also relying on their dreams defile the flesh, reject authority, and blaspheme the glorious ones. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, for they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Woe to them, for they walked in the way of Cain and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error and perished in Korah's rebellion. They are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. Shepherds feeding themselves, waterless clouds swept away by winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead, uprooted. While waves, wild waves of the sea, casting up the foam of their own shame, wandering stars for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever. It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousand of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These, they are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters, showing favoritism to gain advantage. But you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. It is these who cause division, worldly people devoid of the Spirit, but you, beloved, building yourselves up in, the most in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life, and have mercy on those who doubt, save others by snatching them out of the fire, to others show mercy with fear, hating even the garments stained by the flesh. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, and now and forever. Amen. <clears throat> all right. You can get the impression? He's really blasting these people as you go through. And he, he lays the foundation of what we can expect, that that's going to be happening. So what I want to do this morning is... Um, talk really about just the introduction, which I think is critical for understanding the book. 
Um, but I do want to go through that. We read through that. And if you're like me reading through that, you got lost part of the way through. And then you kind of come back to it. And it's hard to know exactly what he's going to say. So I want to do a brief introduction to what the uh, Jude is telling us. And then look at this first um, introduction, the first two verses, which after reading through the book actually will make a little bit more sense. He almost repeats the introduction and the conclusion when he's done with the book. Um, before we, we do that, though, uh, Jude is written by Jude. Who is Jude? Most likely the brother of Jesus. Yeah, he is probably, as far as we know, the brother of Jesus. Um, it, the actual name is Judas, which is the Greek form of the word Judah, um, but he, he, he's known as Jude. Um, Judas was an extremely common name until after Judas betrayed Christ, in which case Christians stopped naming their children Judas um, or Judah. But this is Jude, the brother of Christ. You all know there's two disciples that were named Judas, right? There was Judas Iscariot and Judas not Iscariot. <laughs> well, that's the way it's known because that, of that name. But this is one of the brothers we believe of Christ. He mentions that he is the brother of James. Um, James is the brother of Christ. James, the James that's here is the James who is the uh, head of the church in, in Jerusalem. Um, <clears throat> and um, he was the brother of Christ. So that's interesting. You may want to ponder that. Uh, I think if it was me writing that first verse, I would have said Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and the brother of Jesus Christ, right? But he didn't do that. He says, I'm the brother of James. Um, probably written in about 68 to 70 AD. It was written after 2 Peter, and we know that because he quotes from 2 Peter. I don't know if you caught that or not, but in the end, toward the end of the book, it didn't say 2 Peter, but in verse 17, he says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles, the predictions of the apostles of the Lord Jesus Christ, they said to you, and then the next is a direct quote from 2 Peter, in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions. So he either had heard Peter say that, or he had read out of 2 Peter, but we assume he had read out of 2 Peter and was quoting 2 Peter. In other words, the apostles verify this. Just so you know, Jude is not an apostle, okay? Um, he is, has authority to write this book. It's been accepted in the canon of scripture, but there's actually several New Testament writers who are not apostles, right? Anybody think of who they are? Luke, who obviously wrote Luke and Acts, who else? Yeah, Mark, who wrote the book of Mark. And then you would have uh, the book of James, which was written by James, the brother of Jesus, um, who was also not an apostle, he was the brother of Christ, and then Jude, and for, it's possible Hebrews was not written by apostles, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. So, um, you don't have to be an apostle to write the scripture, Jude is not an apostle, but he grew up with Jesus, um, but that's not what's important. What's important is what happened, that God got a hold of him and gave, by his grace, um, saved him. Um, the purpose of the book is given as clearly as any purpose can be given in verse 3. He says, Behold, beloved, though I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you 
to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So apparently he was intending to write a different letter, but he noticed that there was a more serious problem. There was error that had crept into the church. It is now time to contend for the faith. The faith refers to um, our common salvation, uh, the faith that was delivered. This is not your personal faith. This is contending for the faith. Um, and then the reason for that purpose is given, and that is in verse 4. He says, For certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a problem that he's identified in their church. They have ungodly people who have crept in unnoticed. That means they're in the church and they are doing um, one of two things or both. They all have denied our Master and Lord Jesus Christ. They refuse to acknowledge him as their Master and Lord. Um, and if you go back to 2 John, 1 John, they have probably denied that Jesus Christ is God. That's what that means. But they certainly have denied that he is their master and their Lord. And they have also taken the grace of God and perverted it into sensuality. So they're using the gospel to enrich themselves, to, to, um, to do all of the things that our body would crave. So there may be sexual immorality there. There may be um, just um, hoarding and gaining things for themselves. But their lifestyle is one where they, they are living for their, for their pleasure. Um, and they're using the grace of God to do that. They're saying it's okay for me to do this because of God's grace. Um, my mind immediately goes to some of the radio or the TV preachers who have their big lavish sets and are out constantly asking for money so that their ministry would grow, but it seems like the only purpose for their ministry is to make them richer, right? I actually had a friend who, you guys all know TBN, Trinity Broadcast Network, Paul, Paul and Jan Crouch, I think. I had a friend who was actually pumping gas in Orange County, which is where their ministry is, and Paul Crouch drove up in his Jaguar with gold-plated trim. The trim was gold-plated. And my friend is sitting there, he got out, and he goes, hey, Paul, and the guy goes, hi, and uh, it was Paul Crouch. I mean, you saw him on TV, but there was people who were living for their own, I think, could be wrong, but seemed to be completely uh, doing what they're doing for their own pleasure. Um, now, real quick, because I don't have tons of time, I just want to run you through some of what is said about them. Um, in verses, we're just going just gonna to really briefly touch on it. In verses 8, um, excuse me, 5 through 7, he gives three examples that let us know what these people are doing, what type of error. I think these are three different errors. The first one is the error of unbelief. The people came out of Egypt, and then they did not believe, and they were destroyed. We're talking about the first generation that came out of Egypt wandered in the wilderness and died because they did not believe that God could uh, get them into the promised land. They did not believe in God. So lack of belief is our first error. Second is denial of authority. We have angels who left their place of authority and were condemned for that. 
And then the next section will talk about that as well. There seems to be a real issue with acknowledging the authority that's over them, that God is their authority. And then finally, we have Sodom and Gomorrah, and it makes it very clear that they were destroyed for their sexual immorality. So we can take those first two, they deny the great, they use the grace of God for sensuality and they deny our Lord and master. They either don't believe or they deny his authority or they live for their own pleasure. Um, if you go down to verse 11, I'm gonna skip a little bit here. We'll cover it all later. We're not gonna do this all in one day. He once again gives three errors. They walked in the way of Cain and we all know what Cain did. He offered a sacrifice of his own merit and when God rejected it, he rejected God. He said, I want nothing more to do with you. He denied the authority of God um, and abandoned themselves for the sake of gain to Balaam's error. Balaam, one who cursed the people of God for money. And then they perished in Korah's rebellion where they deny the true authority that was placed over them, which was Moses. And well, they denied it. They, they said, we don't believe that you're the only one. And then he goes, verse 12 through 13, he gives a number of examples of what false teachers are or do. Those examples all deal with something which is either not doing what it's promised to do or is just flat out dangerous. So the first one, they are hidden reefs at your love feasts as they feast with you without fear. By the way, they should be feasting with fear because they are not believers and they should not be taking communion. That's what the love feast is. But they're hidden reefs. Uh, I don't know if there's a whole lot scarier in a boat than thinking about hitting something underwater, especially if you're off the coast and coming in. That boat's going to sink and everybody's going to die. A hidden reef is a dangerous thing. Shepherds feeding themselves. What are shepherds supposed to do? Feed the sheep. Feed the sheep. Waterless clouds, we know about that, right? When you see a storm coming, it dissipates and it just, uh, it's supposed to rain. That's what it's supposed to do. Um, waterless clouds swept along by the winds, fruitless trees in late autumn, twice dead. Okay, so it's a tree that didn't bear fruit and we've over, we pushed it over. It's doubly dead and it isn't doing what a tree is supposed to do, bear fruit. Um, wild waves of the sea casting up the foam of their own shame wandering stars by the way that's an oxymoron a star was fixed it didn't move there was a name for wandering stars they were called planets the idea is the stars aren't supposed to change their position but these are wandering stars um, for whom the gloom of utter darkness has been reserved forever and then if you go over to verse 16 it says these are grumblers malcontents following their own sinful desires, they are bold, are loud mouth boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage, all right? So that's the situation. These people are there. I doubt if every one of them exhibits all of those characteristics, but somewhere in them, those characteristics are going to become evident and they are to be rejected for that. Now, the problem with that, if we have error and we have the problem of being shipwrecked and we have the problem of people being swept away is that that may actually be somewhat discouraging. What if I'm the one who gets swept away? What if I get caught up in error? What if, what if um, there's somebody in our church and it takes me away? And 
and that's why I think the beginning of Jude is so important, especially the first verse, because he's going to lay a foundation for us uh, understanding what's happening in the rest of the book. Um, he begins by saying, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Now, that's not unusual. Um, I actually looked it up. There's uh, Paul calls himself a servant in the introduction in Romans, Philippians, and Titus. James does that. Um, Second Peter begins that way. Revelation begins that way. Most of the time, Paul calls himself an apostle. But I think starting, and by the way, the servant there is bondservant, slave, a slave of Jesus Christ. Why does he call himself that in the context of this book? He made the determination to stay a slave or become the slave. Yeah, he is the slave of Christ, which is the exact opposite of what the false teachers are, right? They deny that Christ is their master and Lord. He's going to set himself at the beginning that Christ is my master and Lord. He, I am his slave. And then he says, and this is just, again, fascinating to me, and brother of James. Okay, James is the head of the Jerusalem church. James was at the Jerusalem council. James, that gives him a, a link so that his book will be accepted by people. Why not say the brother of Jesus? Wouldn't that be more <laughs> if that's what you're trying to accomplish? I mean, avoiding a high mindedness, I would say, is probably the reason you didn't do that. Say that again? Avoiding a high mindedness. Okay, trying not to look proud by saying it. Okay, very good. Darla. Yeah, he does not do that either. Very good, Rod. Well, he's, he's truly James's full brother as opposed to being a half-brother. Okay, so he's a full brother. Okay, here's my take, um, and I, I don't necessarily think it's, uh, it's not authoritative, but this is what I think is happening. The primary relationship that James has uh, is, is not that he's a brother of Christ in the sense that, that I'm the physical brother of Christ. It, it's that he's the spiritual brother of Christ. Um, but it's hard to say that um, this way. In other words, um, being the physical brother of Christ actually doesn't mean anything. It's being saved. <laughs> that means something. You guys remember when Jesus is preaching and his brothers and his mother come to take him away because they think he's insane? And it states that his brothers did not believe in him. And when they come to take him, Jesus says, who is my brother? Who is my mother and my brother? May I remember? Who's my mother and my brother? Anyone who believes in me. Jude believes in Jesus. Jude was an unbeliever. His, his kinship, physical kinship with Christ is not what's important. What's important is his relationship to Christ as his master and Lord, as, as the God of the universe, the one who saved Egypt, I mean Israel, out of Egypt. And to have gone to being the half-brother of Christ, I think would have 
sent the wrong message at this point. Uh, he's no different than you or I. We are brothers of Christ as well. He is our elder brother. Um, now, we only have 15 minutes and we may have to come back to this next week. Look at the next verse. I think this is, Jude begins with this as a foundation, as an anchor, as we go through the rest of this book. He says, to those who are called, comma, and by the way, there is a comma there. You could say, well, maybe it's, we're called beloved. That's, that's not the way it is. This is to those who are called, um, so to those who are called, to those who are beloved, and to those who are kept. I think that's probably the shortest description of what it means to be a believer in the entire Bible. You want to know what you are as a believer? You're called, you are beloved, and you are kept. Those three. Um, if these aren't true of you, then you are not a believer. Okay? You could be the brother, half-brother of Christ, and this wouldn't be true. unless uh, If this isn't true of you, then you are not saved. So the book is written to those who are called, beloved, and kept. That first verse, or first word, called, is almost universally, uh, almost universally used in the New Testament of believers. Believers are ones who are called. And it is synonymous with the word chosen. Called and chosen are the same idea theologically. Let me just give you some, we don't have time to look these up. I'm just gonna read them off. You'll remember some of these. In Romans 8.28, it says that we are called according to his purpose. If you're a believer, you're called according to his purpose. In Romans 8.3, you are called to salvation. Um, in 1 Corinthians 1.2, uh, we are saints by calling. Um, in 1 Corinthians 1.24, it's both Jews and Gentiles who are called. 2 Timothy 1.9, we are called with a holy calling. Um, and in Hebrews 3.1, we have a heavenly calling. In 1 Peter 2.9, we are called out of darkness and into light. In Ephesians 4.1, we've been called to walk worthy. In Galatians 1.6, we've been called by God's grace. In 2 Thessalonians 2.14, we're called uh, through the gospel. And in Revelation 17.14, it says we are called and chosen. There's only one place where being called is not synonymous with chosen, and that is in the parable where Jesus sends out people to bring in people for the wedding, his, his servants to bring in people for the wedding feast, and a lot of them have excuses, and then he goes out and he calls more of them, and he calls more, and finally they have the wedding feast, and Jesus says, for many are called, but few are chosen. That is what we would call a general call. But normally, in other words, the call that just goes out to everybody, come to Christ. This is the efficacious call that we're talking about here. This is a call that God calls you and draws you to himself. This is a call that cannot be resisted. 
um, which makes some people say, well, then we have no free will, but this is not a call that you want to resist, okay? Um, I have a picture in my mind of, I go over to one of my tenants and she has one of those little tiny yipster dogs. You know, it's a little, I don't know, chihuahua mixed with something else small and it barks and it growls. But the minute the door opens, guess what happens? Boom, that dog is out. And then she comes and calls the dog. And you know what happens? Nothing. The dog just keeps going. And she's yelling at the dog. And then finally I say, you want me to go after it? No, it'll come home on its own. Okay, that's not the call we're talking about here. Okay, that dog did not receive an efficacious call. When Christ calls, when God calls, we come. And that is at the heart of our salvation. If, if your salvation de depends upon you responding to God, you won't do it because Ephesians says that you are dead in your trespasses and sins. The calling of God would do nothing. It would be like that little dog. You want to go your own way. Just to hear the call is not going to save you. It's when God grabs you, calls you, chooses you, and brings you in. And we know that that's done before the foundation of the world. So if we go to Ephesians, you are called before the foundation of the world. Um, if you go back to Romans chapter 8, um, and we will turn there. I know I've just been throwing out verses, but uh, Romans chapter 8 gives us what we oftentimes call the order of salvation. Um, starts, we know, in Romans 8, 28, I, and says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he has also glorified. There's an unbroken chain. God sets us apart for himself, then he calls us to himself, then he justifies us, then he glorifies us, and all four of those things will happen. Uh, you're in the middle of that process when we're called. Um, James is talking to called ones, the ones who are false prophets are not called. They have not been called to, to Christ. They're using their position for their own purposes. Next, we are called and we are beloved. Again, this isn't called beloved, we are beloved in the Father. Um, the, the dominant thing that we should keep in mind is that God loves us. Everything that he's doing is for us because he loves us. Which then leads to an immediate question. Why? Why does he love us? Um, and can I just say that's a, actually a, 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 it's a logical question to ask, but it is a dangerous question to ask. Because you know what you're looking for when you ask that question? something good in myself, that then I can understand why God would have loved me or why God would have chosen me. And if you find it, which you're not going to, what happens if that slips away? What, what if the reason that God loves you is because you've never lied? 
that's not possible, but let's just assume. You've never told a lie, so that must be why God loves me. What happens when you tell a lie? God doesn't love you anymore? No. This is the agape love. It's a love of choice. It's not based on who you are. And if it was, it wouldn't have any comfort for us. You are beloved of the Father because the Father has set his love on you. Um, I heard C.J. Mahoney talk about this, and he said he believes that most of the problems that Christians have is that they don't actually believe that God loves them. Okay? So they will verbalize that he does, but deep down inside, they think that there's something in them that when they sin, God doesn't love them as much anymore. That because of their past, God can't love them. Because of their performance now, God can't love them. And he said he has people uh, started early on in his ministry that would come in and say, I just wrestle with whether God loves me. Why would God love me? And he said, finally, I started telling people, I would say, you know, I don't know you well, but from what I know about you, there's absolutely nothing about you that God would, that would make God love you. And they're kind of like, because what did they want? They wanted affirmation. They wanted to be told why they were good enough to be loved. Um, this is an interesting quote from John Owen. Everybody know who John Owen is? Great Puritan author. If you want some deep theological reading, read some of his works. He has a book that talks about being chosen by God called The Death of Death and the Death of Christ. And if you can read through that in a weekend, I'll be really impressed. Anyways, it's, uh, it's really deep, but this is what he said. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father is. Okay, now, pretend I haven't just been talking. You went up to a typical person. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on God the Father is. Oh, it's that sin that I keep committing, right? Or it's, uh, I don't love him the way that I should. Or my, I, I, my, my prayer life is a shambles. Or I've neglected the word, right? Immediately we're going to things that we've done. This is what John Owen says. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father is not to believe he loves you. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father is not to believe that he loves you. Why? Well, what does he say? He who did not spare his own son for you. God has done everything to demonstrate that he loves you unconditionally as you are, and, and there's nothing that he, that he could do more than that. Imagine talking with God and saying, you know, God, I don't really truly believe that, that you love me because of all the stuff that goes on in my life. And God's saying, what more could I do? I gave my son for you. My son was crucified for you. Um, what else would you want me to do? Send you a card, right? What, what do you want me to do more than what I have done? So it's, it's important as you go through this book, we are called and we are beloved. That's our foundation. And then along with that then comes this idea of being kept. This is the concept of eternal security. What God has claimed for himself, he will hold on to. Um, we go back to John 10. 
um, where Jesus says, those whom the Father has given to me, um, basically I will never lose. No one will be able to snatch them out of my hand. And Paul in Romans 8 does the same thing. In fact, I was, after I was studying this uh, this week, it occurred to me that this is not just a three-verse summary of salvation, this is a three-verse summary of Romans 8, uh, 28 and following. Uh, I want you now that we've seen that, I wanna read through Romans 8, 28 and to the end of the book, end of the chapter, not the end of the book, that would take a while. Um, Romans 8, 28, listen for these things. We've been called, we are beloved, and we are kept. And we'll, we'll end with this. Romans 8, 28. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called and those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. What should, shall we say to these things then? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? This is dealing with being kept. It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is he who died more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of God, of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God. We have been called, God loves us, and God will keep us. I heard John MacArthur talk about this at Shepherd's Conference a few years back. He preached out of Romans 8:28. And the most profound thing he said to me was, um, if, if God is not keeping your salvation, you would already have lost it. You would already have lost it. If it's up to you, he said me, he said, if it's up to me to keep my salvation, I'm already lost. Um, because we can't do that, only God can do that. Now at the end of the book of Jude, there's an interesting um, thing, and that is that he tells us to keep our salvation. So you might say, well, Scott, see, it, we do have to. Verse 21, keep yourselves in the love of God. But uh, I would say that the only reason you can keep yourself in God's love is that he's keeping you in God's love, okay? Um, there is a proper response, but, but that response is only proper because God has already done it. God is keeping us so that we can keep ourselves in his love. And we'll get to that later. So that's the introduction to Jude. Next week, we'll go through some of the heresies. And then the week after that, we will, uh, not the heresies, some of the characteristics, we'll end with that last part about what do we do now? And that is to snatch people back and to be encouraging to each other and to keep ourselves firm and all the other things that come from that. Any comments before we end?
our short little introduction to Jude here. Okay, let's go ahead and pray for